Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Kinstead Wealth, where they give private investors access to the best asset class managers in the world. As a business owner who simply did not have the time nor the knowledge to manage my own financial assets, I was always on the hunt for a partner that would be able to give me access to something more than the stock market. Two years ago, I was introduced to Kinstead Wealth, and my eyes were open to an entirely new set of possibilities. Their pension endowment style approach to portfolio management allowed a portion of my portfolio to be allocated to non-traditional assets such as private equity, private agriculture, private real estate, and private infrastructure, amongst others. This allowed me to have access to non-traditional assets that have return expectations superior to public stocks while having lower volatility. With these assets added to my traditional portfolio, I had the opportunity to enhance my returns and lower my volatility overall. You may be asking yourself, what do you mean by non-traditional assets? In short, these are institutional quality assets that are not promoted to the retail market, but to the pension, endowment, foundations, and family offices due to the fact that their minimums are very high. By partnering with Kinset as an investor, I was able to gain access to these financial vehicles that are typically out of reach for most people. To learn more about how Kinset can help you and your family, please visit them today at www.kinstead.com. Kinstead Wealth is a very proud member of our community and donates 1% of their top-line revenue every year to the charitable sector. Hello and a warm collisions. YYC, welcome to my returning guest, Mr. Brent Smith. How are you doing, Brent? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Oh, my pleasure. I, we had such a good conversation with I joke in the world of business. It's a lot like dating. We went on a first date. It went really well. People <laughs> seem to think we looked good together. We made a good couple. Let's go on a second date. You are Chief Investment Officer at Kinstead Wealth. You are... Um, a thinker, a strategist, living in the world of the of of the public equity markets with resentment, I might say, for the audience who wasn't listening five minutes ago when <laughs> you and I had our pre-chat. So let's let everybody, if they haven't heard about, we've been a partner with Kinsett here for a couple of months. I'm a, I've been a customer for a couple of years, a big fan of you guys and what you do. But if the audience hasn't, doesn't know about you guys, give us the quick elevator pitch and then let's uh, let's get into it. Yeah, we're a, a wealth counseling firm here in Calgary that that's got clients pretty well all over all over the Canada all over Canada, but most of our clients would be Alberta based. Um, you know, I think we have a much different <clears throat> investment platform than the vast majority of uh, <clears throat> of wealth counseling firms in Canada. Uh, we are a big believers and have embraced the non-public markets. And I think that really differentiates us from from the vast majority, as I mentioned, of, of uh, wealth counseling firms in in Canada. And it's going to be a big difference maker going forward for clients, especially well, if they don't it, have if they don't yeah. have exposure to these non-public uh, markets. I think that's that it, they're going to they're going to feel it at some point. And I, I think, well, I think that's a great way to lead off into kind of the, the rabbit hole and maybe some of the angst of, of, of the day. I think you started my, our, our call today before we pushed the record button with, I believe I hate public uh, equity markets or I want nothing to do with public. So let's unpack that a little bit because I think for a lot of us, we sit back on the sidelines as an, as I'm just going to say, just an average retail investor going, well, what else do I have access to? That's what's out there. Oh my God, I must be missing out on something. Which is, you know, mm -hmm. your buddy only tells you about the trip to Vegas that he makes money on. He doesn't tell you about the trip that he loses money on. And the private, the public equity markets has a lot of stories of like, oh, I made this and I made that. But there's a lot of realities. It feels like a trip to Vegas right now. So maybe, maybe I'll throw that out and let you respond. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that long term public equity markets are still going to, you know, deliver some kind of positive return if you if you take a 10-year time horizon <laughs> you, you Brent, know I'm, I'm, I'm sensing some cynicism in your voice well you know one one of the things that we do look at on an annual basis is is what are the you know what are what are the big asset management firms the big uh banks uh globally what do they think actually i'll use blackrock as 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 a perfect example world's largest asset manager you know their capital market expectations or their expectations for the s p 500 over the next decade is six percent six and a half percent you know it, it that, that's not really something you want to write home about and and if you look at canadian bonds what are they expecting canadian bonds to probably one and a half percent so you know if you've got a 60 equity 40 fixed income port portfolio after fees you're probably not um especially when you start taking into account inflation I was you know, going to say that that's a bigger that's a much bigger number that's eating away at your realities, much more than your fees or any other things right oh, now. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's it's it, it's going to be difficult for uh, for investors to to kind of eke out any kind of 
you know, six, seven percent, even five percent rate of return. I think BlackRock's got two point eight percent for a balanced portfolio over the next decade. Um, that, that's so almost. All, so all you're basically doing is keeping, like, you're stopping the erosion of your capital, but you're not. But that sounds like that. That's a that's a poor. That's a poor objective over a ten-year period of time. Yeah, <laughs> or, poor outcome. I should say. Maybe it's not your objective, but maybe it's your outcome. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, your your purchasing power is going to remain pretty uh, the same as it is today. It, it, getting at two point five, two point eight percent nominal rate of return. It's it's uh, you know it's pretty dismal. So I know that, and certainly why I chose to, to work with you guys and, and, and become involved in your firm was your access to these private investments. So talk a little bit more. I think it's worth, like, I know we talked about it and belabored it a little bit on the first, on the first mm-hmm. call, but w- private investments, what are they? How do they function? Like, let's talk to people and like, like give people a chance to get educated a little bit on what these private in- investments are versus just hearing a, a term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, it is, it, it really is important to educate, uh, you know, investors on, on what private investing is. Um, and uh, just be from a pricing perspective. So, so let, let, uh, you know, we tend to look at, at, at Kinstead, we, we invest in a number of private types of, of uh, investments. One of them would be private credit or private debt. Um, you know, that, that's, these are just, uh, uh, um, you know, debt instruments that that are between a one lender and one borrower. Typically, the big the big uh, private debt lenders are. You know, we deal with Morgan Stanley and Nuveen Capital. <clears throat> um, it, probably during the financial crisis, th- there was basically a vacuum created in the in the in the lending market because the banks basically got out of out of the lending and it created this vacuum where these big institutions started you know raising capital and they became the lenders to these typically private firms so you're not so the the, the great thing about private debt is it doesn't trade on a daily basis you're not getting that that interest rate impact you know if interest rates go up um, you're you're okay. you're Canadian bond is going to go down. So you don't really experience that in the private debt market. In fact, um, back to BlackRock, their, their, their expectations for private debt uh, over the next decade is about 9% per year. So put that into perspective when, when they expect yeah. Canadian bonds to do 1.5%. But to hear you talk about it, it, it almost operates like a fixed like a fixed income asset because you've got a paper deal that's set up for a period of time. Like you said, it's not subjective to all the national like fluctuations. Of like all of a sudden, oh my goodness, we hear that the Bank of Canada raised rates. This is not affected by that because these are this is a deal that was put in place, and you're buying into a prearranged deal. That's right. It's the lender and the borrower have arranged a deal. To, the you know the the borrower is going to be paying seven point two five percent. Um, to the to the lender, and it's you know it's it's a contractually uh, agreed upon uh, deal. So you 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 know it's it's a pretty straightforward type of um, type of asset class. We love it. We we've really increased our exposure to private debt. Uh, it's just a no brainer. I, I hate what's, using. I'm curious, that. just to give context, what's the size of those deals? Like because we're talking about major players that are coming in and borrowing twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred million. Like what what are the numbers, or is it pooled in some way? Well, the way that most uh, lenders are, are, you know, I'll use Morgan Stanley. There's, there's a lot of them. We just happen to be, a, you know, a, a have a great relationship with Morgan Stanley. They've launched. Well, and I think, couple- and I think that's, a, I think that's a name people recognize as well. It's not some obscure kind of happens out of the public's eye. That is, yeah, a, that, that's yeah. a well-known Morgan name. Stanley, Nuveen. Uh, for for viewers who are her listeners who aren't familiar with Nuveen, they they manage over a trillion dollars of assets. They're one of the largest asset managers in the US uh, um, and they're they are one of the largest uh, lenders of, of private debt in oh, okay. in, in okay. the US um, these deal mo- most of them deal with with uh, not public companies most private debt is done with private uh, companies that, okay. that you know by the way there's a lot of uh, there's a <laughs> There's 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 more private companies than there are public companies, and and some of these are very 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 large in institutions. Um, so most of those deals tend to be done tend to get done with private 
firms, not public okay. firms. Okay. Yep. And again, deal 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 size. Just again, I, I put numbers uh, around things so we can wrap our head while we're talking. They about. could they could be twenty million deal dollar deals. They could be forty million dollar deals. They could be hundred million dollar deals. Sometimes the bigger the deal, the, the firm may want to um, uh, find a few other partners to to get that deal done. But they're they're very cautious about not having more than let's in a pool. It's, let, let's go back for a second and say that they've raised a uh, billion dollars that they are going to lend out. So it's a, it's a fund that's raised a billion dollars from institutions like ours, and then they will go out and lend that that money. So that there's there's obviously oh, okay. a big com- yeah I understand yeah. So a big component of this is uh, uh, is risk mitigation as well. They they they, they don't want to have you know more than five percent exposure to one particular um, uh, lending deal. And you, you use the word risk, which is obviously a big word these days <laughs> on so on so many fronts and mitigating at that. Are these, I guess, where do these sit on, on from a risk profile? 10 being the riskiest, what, zero being not risky at all. Where would you place these against, you know, you, the bond market perceived to be very safe, but also very, very low return. That's always the trade-off, right? The more return I get, the more risk I seem to have to take yeah. on, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's going to be um, a bit more risk than a government than a government bond, uh, the risk of losing your capital with a government bond is zero, next to zero. I mean, we can just continue to print money to, to pay you back. Um, but but I, but I do think there, there's there's that that interest rate risk with with government bonds that people aren't that many people are are just not aware of. Um, but l- let me put this into perspective. Uh, if you look at, and I don't have the data in front of me, but historically, the high yield bond market in the U.S. Uh, on a quarterly basis averaged about, let's call it, uh, uh, please don't quote me on this. <laughs> I got, it, it, it's in the ballpark. They, they, it probably returned about one and a half percent or one and a quarter percent per quarter, with a volatility of about four percent. Right. <clears throat> If you look at private lending, even even during the financial crisis, financial uh, our, our private private debt still uh, delivered positive returns. But from from uh, looking at at over the probably the past ten years, private debt on a quarterly basis has done about twice that of the high yield bond market, with half of the volatility. <laughs> right. So okay, when, when, so, when you look right. at something <laughs> like that and you go. Why the heck would I even invest in in in, um, in high yield bonds if a, with with half the return and twice the volatility of private debt? You know, as long as you've got access to it. Well, which is really what we're talking about in, in a firm like yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, gives that access because you you do the research, you pool funds together, you you allow where the average retail investor. I only can I can go and I can set up my trading account and I can buy X amount of shares and X amount of company mm-hmm. and I can spend ten dollars I can spend a hundred thousand dollars it's up to me but in these in this realm there's just a barrier to access where you you need to be playing with a, a pooled group of assets or a large enough amount of funds to make it even work. Yeah, and 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 you know all of these and it's just not private debt with but but all of the private investments that we invest in they are institutional. Um, we, we deal with. <clears throat> excuse me, with large institutions. Uh, it's not, you know, the exempt market dealer space where, where an investor can can invest 25000 or 10000 These These are institutional quality investments where the minimum investment tends to start at around a 10 million USD range. Um, so it, it excludes the vast majority of, of or 99.9% of, of the public from investing in any of these strategies. And and some of these, and again, we're talking about private debt. What, but also, you're also investing in, in real, tangible assets, hard assets. I've been doing some reading lately, and like talking about, geez, value investing and looking at the future. And we've got so much volatility. Some of these, like you know, high return stocks over the last few years in the public markets are now getting very risky, even more volatile. So there's this movement towards like re, quote unquote real assets. So would that also would that fall into this group that way? Yeah, I, I mean, we first started talking about what I think your first question: what are what are some of these these non traditional or, or alternative yes. investments? And we started off with private debt, but if if you look at you know you know outside of say hedge funds, um, we we basically invest in in, in the vast majority of of uh, uh, 
um, private investments ranging from private real estate, um, you know, infrastructure debt, uh, agriculture, timberland, uh, you know, private agriculture and private and timberland, private infrastructure, um, private equity, venture capital, um, opportunistic credit, distressed debt, if there's opportunities there. So, so we try to find opportunities in, in, in pretty well every space that I, that I just mentioned. And I, I should point out one of the major differences. <clears throat> so it, it, with this, and, and, and this is really important for listeners to understand, if we commit, um, and usually these are limited partnerships that you invest in, and when you commit, you, you don't, you know, I, I, I might say, well, we're going to invest $20 million in this strategy. Well, we're, we're not wiring $20 million. We've committed $20 million. <clears throat> so it may actually take three to four years for your commitment to be finally uh, fully invested. And you may, well, why, why would it take that long? But think about it. On the private side, let, let, let's use infrastructure, for, for example. <clears throat> um, and I'll use uh, Brookfield because we, we recently committed $20 million to, to their new um, global transition fund. Well, it, it's not, they're not buying public companies where you can invest that $20 million, like instantly. They are looking for opportunities in that space and that full amount that they're looking to that they've raised or that I think that there's 12 billion dollars in commitments that they've had so it, it they may it, they may take four three four five years to find opportunities to invest in where um, where, where that that our 20 million we committed will be fully invested. So it may take a long, you know, two, three, four years before we've actually uh, gotten an email from from, uh, Brookfield saying, hey, we just bought a new, some new private um, infrastructure deal that that we're getting into. Um, We're paying X of your 20 million, we need $2.3 million. And we'll wire it over the next week or two. So that's kind of how the mechanics of how um, the private's uh, limited partnerships work when you're investing. And as far as how they work from a pricing perspective, uh, it, you know, please recognize that they do not trade on the public markets. It's not the public markets deciding what this project is worth minute to minute, second to second. Valuations on these are typically done on a quarterly basis by, you know, uh, accounting firms and and that sort of thing. So there is a real lag effect uh, between by the the time you, for for example, we're still waiting for uh, our our December quarter end statements for all of our uh, infrastructure investments. Because they they're tend still going to come. Through, they're going. They're going through their accounting process. They're going mm-hmm. through the uh, accounting, the auditing process, and then usually we'll get them within twelve weeks after, ten to twelve weeks after quarter end. We've been getting some of them on the private equity side and and so on. So and that's why when it, when a when a client is investing with 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 our firm and uh, with our firm is they're not seeing. Um, all of the returns reflected, uh, you know, in their in their quarterly statements because there's a back, lag back effect the, with a lot of the yeah. privates. You know, we, we haven't, all of our private debt haven't, now, with our private debt, we do accrue some income on a, on a daily basis. Well, because that, that one's a little bit more predictable because yeah, it's based on yeah. the contract and it's based yeah. on, yeah, that, that's, I see how they are different. Mm. So, some of them, for example, like, uh, you know, our, we, we invest in the Brookfield Supercore Investment um, partners fund, which is just invest in core, high quality core infrastructure. Yeah, that's that's targeting a net return of eight. I think he, since inception, they've done about seven point nine. The vast majority of that is income. Uh, they don't expect a lot of capital appreciation, 
five to six percent cash yield. So we can, you know, we can be a bit more conservative and start accruing maybe four to five percent income into that. But yeah, okay. uh, but some of them we haven't accrued anything. Private equity, you don't accrue anything uh, because it's going to be mostly capital appreciation. So so just just for investors who are investing or looking to invest in in this type of these types of strategies. You know, you could look at your portfolio day to day and go, geez, these pools aren't even moving. And the reality is because pricing hasn't come in yet, which when the markets are selling off, it's great because you don't see the, the volatility. Back, back to the difference between the public equity markets yeah, and the geo, yeah. geopolitical turmoil we're, we're in, you know, yeah. certainly it yeah. seems like we're always in. I won't say we're in right now. Like it's a new, like it's a new concept. We'll talk about that in a minute. So when you're thinking about, you know, having that conversation, and again, I've met with, Met with lots of versions of you and and people over the years. Always long term, long term, long term. Think for the bigger future. Don't get caught up in the volatility of day to day. But when you're talking about these very specific private investments, is it typically three, five, ten year? Like, what's kind of the timeline you would say to somebody like, yes, always think about long term, but you need to at minimum consider this timeline. Mm-hmm. Well, here, here's here's a difference with with um, I guess how we're approaching the private. Markets. I mean, well, let, let, let's look at the difference between public markets and private markets. The great thing about the public markets is that they are very liquid, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to sell something today, you could sell it. I, I can go on to Quest Trade and sell something as we're talking. Uh, if, um, yeah, and and I've had someone said if I if I want to take a loss, it's still up to me because I can go and do that. I'm in I'm in control of of yeah. that because yeah. there's again providing you're in a in a stock that's got enough liquidity that it'll move. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. So you, you can you can sell anything. You can sell something instantly. Um, uh, so so that's one of the benefits of of uh, you know the the public markets. The downside is they can be extremely volatile, as 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 we know. And I can get into some of the rationale why, if you're interested in why why we're experiencing this this volatility, and I, I just think increased volatility over over time. Um, and and compare or contrast that with the with the private markets where there is very little liquidity. The vast majority of these limited partnerships have next to no liquidity. They tend to have. Um, uh, they, you know, most of these limited partnerships are structured so they could be, uh, they'll exist for five years, six years, and in the case of private equity or infrastructure, they could have twelve-year time horizons on them. Now, that that doesn't mean if we invested ten million dollars today in an infrastructure uh, uh, strategy that in twelve years it's still ten ten million dollars. Typically, the way these private, especially infrastructure and 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 uh, real estate, and um, uh, private venture capital infrastructure, private uh, real estate, the, the way they they typically work is they're going to raise capital, they're going to start investing in in maybe a company or an infrastructure project, and typically by year five to six. They start harvesting their companies and selling them off, and then returning capital to you. But so by the end of, you know, year uh, eight or nine, you've probably had two times your capital returned to you anyway, and you you, you know the rest is just riding on, you you know, it's on the house, if you will. Right. Yeah. Because you are because you've you you were made whole, and everything after that is upside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's talk about a little bit of the, because most of the people listening, I would imagine, have some foot in the toe in the water or foot in the game, or maybe 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 all in in the the public equity markets. And you know, <laughs> it definitely feels like a roller coaster. It feels like we're taking these what were once maybe seven, eight, nine, ten year economic cycles and jamming them into maybe eight, twenty four months, eight, thirty months. But then the volatility is just feeling more extreme and more compressed. Is that a phenomenon? Like, is that actually what's happening over time, or does it just feel that way? Because when you're in the storm, it feels like it's always stormy. I I, I think that volatility. You know, you you take out the environments like. Um, you know the financial crisis, where, where let's face it, we didn't know if the financial system was going to exist. So you can understand the volatility yeah. there, <clears throat> but it's it's the it's the day to day volatility that 
that you're experiencing in just individual names. And, and maybe I talked about a couple la- on our last call where, where, you know, we had one particular stock that was down 24% in the day before its earnings even came out. And the next day it was up 65%. And you go, how is that possible? How can the markets, like, like, like the, the markets are supposed to be rational, like to, to, to value <laughs> is that, something. Is that the biggest illusion uh, right there is that oh, it's supposed to be God. rational? <laughs> you know, it, like a hundred percent change, you know, the market uh, basically thought this, this stock is only worth $20 today and the next day it's worth 40. It, it just doesn't make sense. And I don't think the volatility is going to um, dissipate anytime soon. I think there, there's a couple of reasons. And, and I was actually shocked when I looked into this a couple of years ago. Statistics, statistics I've read is that something like 70% of daily volume on the U.S. stock markets is driven by algorithmic trading. I've, algor- read number, I've read numbers like that. I, had, I didn't think I, – I wouldn't have guessed 70% back searching yeah, back into that. 70%. And so algorithmic trading is, is a lot of, of just trend following. So you, you could look at it. If you start seeing the index starting to roll over, the algo traders – just push it down. And, and I think the, the algorithmic trading is having a big impact on volatility. But there's also another one that's, um, uh, that, that I, I wasn't aware of until I spoke to uh, a, a, a good friend of mine who's, who's uh, heads up, he's managing director of asset allocation at, uh, at CalPERS, the 500 or plus billion dollar um, you know, uh, California State Employees Pension Plan down in California. And he said, you know, one of the other reasons why we're, we're starting to see a lot more volatility is that a lot of big institutions are investing in what's considered, and I'll try not to go to make this too complex, but these tail risk hedging strategies. And, and what okay. is that? It's just a tail risk hedging strategy is just trying to protect your equity portfolio in the case of um, something like that's happening today in the Ukraine. Right, but but they're not trying to protect. You know, they're not they're not uh, structured to protect you for the five to ten to fifteen percent downside, which is pretty normal in the equity markets. It's the bigger the bigger um, uh, downside, like plus uh, down twenty five, thirty, thirty five. But how tail risk hedging strategies work as volatility increases, the strategy is to sell. The S and P 500 or whatever index. So, as volatility, have have we experienced an increase in volatility? Absolutely. What are these tail risk hedging strategies doing? They're selling the S and P 500 or whatever other index. So, so now you're getting the algorithmic traders involved, and now you're getting as institutions are putting more of these tail risk hedging strategies on, and volatility increases. They are selling the S and P 500 or whatever under in other index. But you know, as things turn around, these tail risk hedging strategies will be unwinding those. In other words, buying, um, you know, buying the S and P 500 because they've shorted it, and, and so it adds to volatility both sides. Everyone loves the upside volatility, but no one likes downside volatility. <laughs> but to hear what you're saying is so much of that is being bo- like algorithms or it's being being manipulated by bots that have a certain bias into the way that they're programmed. And then yep. that's what drives so the average investor s- seeing this like you basically the ability as an average as an everyday human uh, retail investor to keep up with that is next to impossible. You, you, you it kind of plays a get lucky strategy or you happen to pick a company that you believe in in the long term and and it does pay off and you and you look away from the volatility. <laughs> it it's basically if you are in the public equity markets today, you really have to focus on the long term. I know it's easy to say. <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah. it's really easy to say. Just focus on the long term. But when you're in the midst of something and seeing something down forty or fifty or sixty percent or whatever it is, it's it's the psychological Im- impact is very very difficult. Uh, and, and we get that. So I, I I'd make two points to it. Is that you know we have asset managers have zero zero control. Over the over market volatility, the only thing we have control over is portfolio volatility. So if 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 you if we've got a client 
uh, or, or if, you know, uh, an investor who's very concerned about, you know, their portfolio being down 5% or 6% or whatever, then they should have next to zero equity exposure because the reality is that even if you've got 30% equity exposure, there's going to be a point in time where equities are going to be down 30 or 40 or, you know, whatever percent. So if you, even if you've got 30% public equity and they're down 30%, there's 9, 9% just from, from that. And let's assume everything else is flat, right? Well, 30%, most investors go 30% equity is not a lot, but but yeah, we, we do. There's lots of examples of equities down 30, 35, 40 percent. So, you know, for for an investor who's concerned about volatility, um, I would certainly, uh, you know, encourage them to look at other asset classes besides just public equities. I had an advisor say to me the other day, he goes, well, I can guarantee you it's in sometime in the future, it'll be down 30 or 40% and it'll probably also be up 30%. I just can't mm -hmm. tell you when and which ones, but he yeah. goes, but it's going to happen. I was like, well, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you, if you just look at history, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 You could look backwards to look forwards. Yeah. Let's let's, you touched on a little bit socioeconomic. We've got some crazy global issues happening in, 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 you know, in Russia that, you know, just, it just felt like we were coming out of this pandemic and that, you know, and I, I was reading an economist recently that I read Peter Anderson and, and he had, he had the recession word in his, in his, in his, in his write up for the go forward. And I was like, Whoa, wait, what? I didn't hear that word coming. And he tied it to inflation and, and rate rate increases in, by the fed. And then also tying it to the war in Ukraine. And I sorted it over to you cause I want to get into this a little bit. Cause I was like, that's the first time I'd seen that word floating around recent in, in my, in my recent kind of knowledge. So I was curious your views on when you look out to the future with your crystal ball as, uh, as, as every financial manager has, right? You guys, you get issued that when you, when you get certified, <laughs> what, 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 what do you, what, what, what do you see and kind of what's your tie into the, you know, inflation versus interest rates versus the impact that this kind of black swan, because you could have predicted it kind of, but it was still surprising. Yeah. That came. Well, yeah. my, my crystal ball has been broken for a while, so I'm, I'm unable <laughs> it's in, it's to in use the shop. that. It's in the shop. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as the, let me just tackle the, the, this conflict war uh, between that the, the Russians are, in, are, you know, engaging with the Ukrainians, which is just, the human toll is just unimaginable. It's, it's just, it's, it's just heart, heartbreaking to see what's going on over there. Um, you know, but, but looking from, from a, from a, you know, capital market expectation uh, or, or impact on the capital markets. I think there's, there's obviously going to be one impact um, potentially we, we don't know yet um, is, is oil and gas, right? Um, you know, coming into 2022, uh, we, we still expect economic gro global economic growth to be above trend. Um, we still believe economic growth is is going to be quite strong. Why else would the Fed? I, I I get that the Fed and other central banks are concerned about inflation. I get that, but that's you know rising inflation. Unless you're in a stagflationary environment, um, you know rising interest rates tend to be due to um, you know rising economic uh, or, or strong economic uh, environment that is driving inflation higher so that's why you know central banks tend to try to uh, raise rates is is to put put a lid on on inflationary pressures um, so we are seeing inflationary pressures obviously <laughs> we've seen uh, highest interest uh, inflation rates in, in in decades but that's also uh, coming with very strong economic growth now let me let me talk about about um, you know uh, the economists you talked about uh, our inflation um, sorry a, 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 well, his, a recession his, word, his words were a potential you know short short-lived but shallow but a recession late spring early summer which in, in all intents and purposes wow. is, is, tomo okay. is tomorrow <clears throat> yeah, yeah his, no. his, his timeline was like three to six months uh, I, I struggled I, I, with it, but I, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree. Please. No, with that's, that, hey, with you've, that, you've got the microphone right now, so please. With that, <laughs> with that assessment, um, you know, first of all, and, and I think maybe his, his view is because rising, inf rising um, uh, oil and gas um, 
uh, costs are, are going to be very, very inflationary. One of the, which is absolutely true. And, and, you know, but one thing I would say is that, you know, if you look at, at other periods where inflation was really driven by energy inflation, um, back in the seventies and, 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 and eighties, um, energy costs, uh, as a, as a percentage of GDP or household income was much, much greater back then than it is today. So rising okay, energy good, prices, okay. right? R- rising energy prices are not as impactful on, on household income on average in aggregate or, 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 uh, GDP as it used to be. Okay. Oh, so that, that's, that's one thing. Okay. Okay. Um, now, from the from the research we've we've have access to, you know, we, we believe or they believe that that um, yes, inflation is going to go up due to, due to due to rising oil and gas price or oil prices. Um, you know, we we can we can tolerate even a hundred and twenty dollar barrel uh, of uh, price uh, of oil before we start going okay. Let's take a step back and see what the, if, if this impact of, of higher oil prices is really going to start impacting global economic growth. So until okay. it gets up to that price, and, and you know what, it, it may. And I think you know one of the one of the things that we do is you always have to reassess where things are. But but where oil is today, we don't think it's going to put the brakes to to global economic. Growth. Okay. We still think it's going to be above trend. That's not to say that it's going to have a, a, a you know, uh, uh, an impact. Um, you know, you know, my biggest concern is 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 that the, the um, you know, if 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 we put a complete blockade on on um, uh, Russian energy, that is going. It's not necessarily going to impact Canadians, Americans. We're always going to have access. To oil and gas, but we know it's a commodity that trades on the on uh, on the markets, commodity markets, and it's, so we will be impacted. But the biggest impact, I think, from a economic perspective, will be on the Europeans. Forty percent of, I think, it's thirty to forty percent of their energy or oil and gas comes from Russia. So if we, if you know, if they just completely blockade that, or just say we are no longer going to be importing Russian oil and gas, that will be very, very devastating to the European economy, which obviously, from a global perspective, will will filter through the whole whole world. So, bar that, I don't think we're going to see a recession in the next three to six months. We're mm-hmm. kind of looking more outwards, maybe late 23, mid 23 okay. to 24. And the reason I say 23 to 24 is, you know, it's I, I like using the U.S. because, you know, the U.S. sneezes, everyone else, uh, or catches a cold or, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, everyone else gets pneumonia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I forget the exact joke, but yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I know the so, joke. So yeah, U.S. catches always, a cold, we we catch pneumonia or something to yeah. that effect. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's more of if U.S. sneezes, we'll we'll catch a cold. Um, but you know, it, it's so I always like to we always like to look at w- what's happening in, in the U.S. And so you know, with with their central bank rate at twenty five basis points, does anyone really believe that re- interest <laughs> rates going to bank rate going to one percent is going to completely destroy the economic environment? One and a half. Don't don't forget, with inflation running at let, let's let well on on a year over year basis, it's something like six or seven percent in the U.S. With with interest, think about it. Even even if interest rates were at three and a half percent, the real interest rate is still negative. Based on when you cut right? the difference, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's still negative. So um, where's the neutral rate? They're talking the neutral, and when I say neutral, what's what's, and no one really knows what the what the neutral rate is. But if 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 uh, when they when they talk about this neutral interest rate, what they mean is a neutral interest rate is the the rate that's going to keep inflation and and jobs kind of balanced. In balance, right? Okay. In balance. So that that's kind of where. And a lot of people are now saying it's three and a half to four percent. So we are so far away from a neutral rate. 
from from what we can discern is that we don't think the market is building in pretty aggressive rate increases by the Fed. You know, even six to seven this year. We, I, I think that's a bit aggressive given where the uncertainty right now with with the conflict over over in Eastern Europe. So I'd, I'd be I'd be shocked if 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 the Fed increases. Uh, is is that bear, um, you know that hawkish? I don't think that's going to happen, but as we do think that as supply chain issues gradually, I hate using that expression because it's it's so overused, you know, su- supply chain. But as supply chain issues gradually get resolved, that's going to take some pressure off of inflation. We're going to gradually see inflation. Come back to I don't know. Let's call it three, three and a half percent sometime in in twenty, probably later this year to to early twenty three. But then I think the biggest concern is that uh, wage inflation is going to have a big impact and in, uh, in, in the U.S. And then the the Fed, while they may go on pause sometime in twenty three, they're going to force. To ratchet up their their interest rate increases, and that's where the, where many strategists believe once that happens, you're going to start to see signs of a recession. So probably, you know, I think we've we've got another maybe year and a half uh, before that scenario probably plays out. Which, to a certain degree, and I don't want to say a recession being a good thing, but it is part of the healthy cycle of the economy. There's up and there's down. There's a reset. Like if you look yeah. at go back to historical. That is kind of how it plays out, right? <laughs> it's a cleansing process. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Sometimes you need to let it burn. And I'm yeah. really, that's a really in, insensitive thing to say, but because it impacts yeah. people's lives. But yeah. you're right, it, yeah. it is the ebb of flow. If you look back historically, that is part of the cycle. It just, it yeah. just feels like they're happening in a more compressed, kind of more extreme kind of gradient at this point. Yeah, I mean, when you, you know, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, we tended to get an economic cycle every five years, you know, from growth to recession, then a, a recovery. I mean, this. When was the last time you know we we had a true recession outside of a of a yeah, of yeah. a pandemic? It's been a very very long um, uh, economic cycle. So, so from that perspective, we're actually because if you take '08 as would you say would that would that be where we're qualifying as the last yeah, time? Yeah, I, I, I would say. Line? Yeah, yeah. So there's actually it's actually significantly. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that. You go back 50, 60 years. It was every five years that that was the cycle. Yeah, an economic economic cycle tended to be five, six years, something now like we're that. Like 13, yeah. 14, 15 years. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's very, very long in the tooth. <laughs> hmm. So the the armchair argument, which is probably baseless, would be like, man, when it happens, it's going to be it's going to be severe. But that actually might not be the case because we've kind of created all these different levers that are impacting. Yeah, I just don't think central banks are. Uh, I think any recession will be will be short lived. Um, okay. Any, you know, they, recessions don't historically don't don't um, you know they don't drag on for years. It's it tends to be relatively short lived, and so do market corrections tend to be relatively short lived as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know one one of the things, and I'm not sure if you were going to ask me about <clears throat> this this inflationary environment. And this is one of the things why, and we were talking a bit about real assets and why we do really like real assets. Not not just today, tomorrow, next week, next year, but for the long term because of that. You know one of one of the interesting things about real assets is they have a very a positive correlation with interest with with inflation as inflation is rising so do real assets tend to do better right think about take a look okay. I, geez, you know i looked at my nmax bill the other day and it was <laughs> it was pretty brutal and i know that it's probably higher than it was a, than a year ago I, I i get that you know weather and all of that kind of stuff but i suspect that some of the costs have increased over the past year. So think about if you actually were invested in NMAX, you're probably doing quite well. And that's that's the, the, the great thing about a lot of these, especially core 
infrastructure like pipelines and utilities that are tied to lo- very long-term guaranteed contracts that are that are linked to inflation. So you're, you're going to do really well in those. Uh, you know, take a look at any. Uh, I saw wheat. Now wheat is going through the roof, but that's more because of Russia. But a yep. lot of commodities have just been going up through through the roof, like food food stock. Um, yeah. Well, Everything and that's, pretty well. And that was happening. That was happening well before the yeah. the, the, the the our current. I don't want to call it a conflict. It's a war. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not so, sure what the right terminology is these days. Mm-hmm. So just take a look at your 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 house. I'm I'm sure it's worth more today than it was a year ago in Calgary. Um, and so real estate tends to tends to appreciate in rising inflationary environments. The, the, the replacement cost goes up and everything. So we 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 love we love real assets because of that. And when when a customer you know sits down with you and a client and says yeah I want to look at everything, do you and of course this is maybe a silly question I know the answer to like a balanced portfolio approach but it feels to me and if I was just to ch- take away from this conversation I would want to go more and more heavily into this specific asset class because of all the reasons you shared and go well maybe I'll leave the public equity markets kind of alone for a while. I'm assuming you still recommended a blended approach or do you believe that depending on where you are in your cycle of investing as, a, as an individual, as a family, as a household, plays a factor, but it definitely feels you are very um, bullish in this direction. <laughs> well, let's just say that it, if you look on a, tr- if, if you're dealing with a traditional asset manager and you went in and said, you know, I'm more of a, um, you know, I, I've got 40 years to, to invest or 25 years to invest. I, I'll guarantee you they're going to say, well, you're a growth investor. You need 100% equity. Yeah. Uh, yes. If you're yeah. a balanced investor today with a traditional manager, they're probably going to recommend, say, 60 equity, 40 fixed income. So if you look at a at a balanced if, – if it's hard to compare apples to apples, but something that would have a similar return profile – Mm-hmm. As a 60 equity, 40 fixed income, will probably have half of the public equity exposure than than a traditional portfolio. <clears throat> what What's interesting today is you 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 know we, we do need liquidity, right? A portfolio, regardless if a client says, "I'm investing for the next 30 years, I'm never going to touch this money." We know things things happen, and and yep. and. Life. In, in people's circumstances. Yeah, life happens and, and maybe they need to access those assets. And, and that's why you do need some, you know, in, in many cases, you need some significant liquidity. And, and as I mentioned, a lot of these private investments are not necessarily, they're not liquid, but we do provide liquidity to our clients. That's one of the great things about this platform is we are providing that what's called an illiquidity premium, meaning, you know, it, um, if you're investing in something that that um, I can't get out of tomorrow or next week or next quarter or next year, you better be offering me a higher rate of return than the public markets. So, or or why would I invest in that? So, they they do provide you with this illiquidity premium, but they're illiquid. But we we do provide the liquidity to our clients through this this uh, pool structure. Um, but to you know, help, I, to help balance to help balance that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, for us, a, a growth investor, probably you know, and we're always reevaluating our long-term strategic asset mixes. Um, you know, a long-term investor who's a growth investor probably should have I don't know something like fifty percent in in non um, in in private equity and venture capital. You know, okay. maybe thirty-five yeah. percent in in public equity. Some in, you know, the reality is, if I start throwing out all of these expected returns, of course, mm. uh, from the the big asset management firms that say equities are six to seven percent, but you can get ten percent in an infrastructure play. I know it doesn't sound sexy. It's it's not a <laughs> growth investment. You're not going to get sixty percent returns, but you're going to get this steady, very, very steady, you know, rate of return in some of these "quote unquote" boring assets. That you know, over over a decade, are probably going to deliver higher rates of returns than public equities with with a third or a quarter of the volatility. So it's it's a it's a it, it's tough. 
you know, um, the, pro, the process might not be sexy, but the outcome sounds like it is. <laughs> Since we're if we're throwing if we're throwing that if we're throwing that word around, what is a sexy investment, Brent? But let's, that's yeah, another yeah. podcast for another day. Well, you know, people, you know, let's face it, you're at the cocktail party, and, and people yes. like to brag about I just invested in such and such a stock, and it's up three hundred percent, and 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 so on. No one's going to talk about this uh, NMAX like investment that's, you know, geez, I, I've got some exposure to this uh, 180 kilometer um, highway between two cities in Poland. That's not really exciting. Right? <laughs> I own shares, oh. I think, in one of the oldest uh, ferry companies in the Netherlands. And it's not exciting, but it has been delivering a dividend for yeah. years. And my manager's like, this is this is good. You'd never have to think about these guys. Yeah, I mean, we we've actually yep. have exposure. <laughs> Just to use to, that as a counterpoint to your, to your highway yeah. one. Yeah, I'm familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, we actually have exposure to, uh, to a, a ferry service from southern England to the Isle of Wight. It's the only way on the island, and it's the only way off the island. So in, <laughs> if in an inflationary environment, do you think those fares are going up? Absolutely, 100%. right? You think so, people are stopping using them? No, because no, we can't. Exactly. <laughs> like, like yeah, your power it's, it's essential. It's essential. Yeah, yep. which is huge. Brent, thanks yeah. so much for going down the rabbit hole with me again. I hope the audience enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. We kind of geeked out a little bit and got down into the, some of the some of the realities of why why you guys do what you do as a firm, which I appreciate, but also giving people an understanding of we've got to get educated as individuals and not get caught up in the hype. And when you've got enough education, go yeah, yeah, that's a great buzz line or that's a great headline about I don't know, pick pick the company that that's on everybody's dinner table talk mm -hmm. but understand mm -hmm. understanding the difference and why you might not go there but it's okay to still find it it's it's like watch it's a little bit like watching a like like a soap opera when you watch some of these stocks and these highly you know volatile ceos doing certain things it's very entertaining but understanding the difference of what is a safe investment for you versus what is maybe entertainment and something you put a little play money in just so you just so you're in the game it's like uh, standing at, the, at uh, standing at the craps table in vegas my buddy goes tyler if you put down 10 bucks, now you're playing. If you're standing here, you're not learning a thing. And I was like, okay, you know what? That's fair. And 10 bucks was about enough I wanted to spend to have that experience. But I do appreciate him calling me on it. But certainly not where I went with my investment portfolio to, to learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. So Brent, what's the, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you, get a hold of Kinstead, learn a little bit more, maybe have a chat? Mm. Uh, they can go on to our web website, you know, uh, www.kinstead.com. Kinstead, that's K-I-N-S-T-E-D. Yes, no A. Com. I sometimes I want to sneak there an is A. No a. There's, there's no A. There's no A. It's just yeah, and uh, you know, you can, you can, or, or you can call our 1-800 number and, and uh, they'll put you in touch with one of our wealth counselors or financial planners or whatever, whatever kind of, um, you know, help you're looking for. We've got I, it. I, I, I appreciate that, and the word the word mm -hmm. counselor ling, lings rings loud and clear for me when you when you when you when you say that in terms of all the other your you words that get used in the industry. Counselor has a different meaning to it, so and I, I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of us, a lot of the industry calls ourselves portfolio managers, which we can, but I think wealth counseling is um, mm -hmm. because a lot of this is is just not about managing one's portfolio, but it's about counseling. People and, and and a big part of the counseling part is, is talking people away from the the, the ledge in environments like this. Hundred <laughs> percent. On, on, on that note, and this will come out in a few weeks. So let's. This was this was recorded on March third. So maybe maybe the conflict in Eastern Europe has been resolved by then. Let's let's hope you're listening to us thinking this is old news. I, I knock I, on wood. I'm fear. Yeah. I'm fearful that might not be the case, but let's be hopeful that it is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brent. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Great as usual. Mm -hmm.